Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Sterling Holy White Mountain grew up on the Blackfeet Reservation. He holds a BA in English and Creative Writing from the University of Montana, and an MFA in fiction from the University of Iowa. He was also a James C. McCrate Fiction Fellow at the University of Wisconsin. His work has appeared in volumes one and two of Off the Path, an anthology of 21st century American Indian and indigenous writers, Montana Quarterly, ESPN.com, The Yellow Medicine Review, and The Atlantic. He is currently completing a story collection. This is the first 10 pages or so of the education of Little Man, False Star Boy. That was the summer I got my one and only claim check and, along with many others, spent my own small piece of the sweet grass hills. That was the summer my uncle, stone sober and believing wholly in the power of Christ in 72, told me stories. The old stories, once first spoken in a language neither one of us knew, but nonetheless had a respect and reverence for that exceeded perhaps every other form we knew. And new stories, rugged stories, stories of his life and the lives of people he knew that at first seemed to be no more than entertainments, the kind you could not tell with any kind of honesty around white people or Indians who are worried about what white people think for fear of being judged a crude savage. And that was the summer Laurie Johnson caught June's man, Caesar Badstrike, screwing Alana Morris in his truck well after midnight right across the street from Laurie's house. Oh, his truck was just rocking, said Lori, her eyes big, her voice over loud when she told the story later to anyone who would listen. She pretended it was an awful story to tell, her best friend's man cheating like that with Alana, who everybody knew opened her legs for anyone who gave a little effort or got her drunk enough. But only a few of us knew Caesar had been chippying with Alana since the previous winter when June had gone home early, too much BV, too quick from Lisa Lastog's New Year's Eve party at her grandpa's house. Her grandpa, who was closing in on the end of his last term as council chairman after 30 years of thieving and kissing the asses of white politicians and businessmen with the best of them. We did not keep the secret of their chippying away from June so much as simply not talk about it with her, the way people who live in places where everyone knows everyone will talk about a thing with everyone but the person who should hear it. And because June was one of those women who, at a certain time in her life, for reasons you cannot quite ever say, holds sway over those around her, and those people do her bidding, and circle round her like fearful acolytes for a time. And then, the way a season will come suddenly to an end, you wake and the light is different, the air has changed, then it is over. To be near her was to stand near a dark fire pulling everything into its flame. There was something about her. Even when she was young, Not even a woman or a young woman, but still almost a girl, there was something about her that made men, older men, I noticed them when we were still almost kids, I saw them turn their heads to her. Later I was jealous. Yet there was another June, 
A second June, the one we joked around with, cruised Maine with, had been drunk as fuck with. The same June who talked however she wanted to anyone, particularly white people, who got expelled first for fighting Dale Hawk in the middle of the middle school basketball court, leaving skinny Dale to spend the rest of his life thinking about it, and us to tease him about it, and then later for beating the holy hell out of Marissa Holter for trying to get with Caesar, who by then had been with June since her eighth grade year, when he was already 17 and a junior champion bull rider. The same June who, during our senior year, wore a perfume that even though she had not used too much was nonetheless heavy, that gave you a sense of being enshrouded in a dark warmth, of being caught in a heavy, languid summer night that wrapped itself around you and left you half asleep. She had stolen the perfume from a department store in Silver Falls on a basketball trip that fall. She had flipped off one of the clerks on her way out, which had made the clerk look at her with that fury white people in Montana reserved for Indians, but which made the rest of us laugh. I sat next to her every morning on the bleachers. I breathed her in. I wanted to put my hands on her, and if I had been older, known more about the long walk to the far end of the slaughter, maybe I would have done it. Maybe I would have reached out and touched her. Maybe I would have made her kiss me the way I had seen Caesar do. Instead, at a party one weekend that spring, when we felt the end of something bearing down on us, like a black train splitting the dark, and there we were, tied to the tracks, waiting for the vibration to turn into sound, the sound to turn into light, and for the light to turn into the screech and howl of a thousand steel horses cutting through our lives, I fucked Kim Bear, a plain girl with a pretty smile other guys were afraid of because she was so tall. Maybe we were getting dressed for P.E., standing around amidst the steel and concrete of the locker room. She's plumb half Amazon, they had said. Maybe we were piled into a car, cruising Maine, listening to a tape we had heard many times. She'll just throw you around, someone would say. Or maybe it was the night of the party, and it was my cousin Gerard who said, Fuck, I bet you're just scared of that one in it. Fuck, I ain't scared, I said. During the first payout, I had been a boy, holding Khan's hand while he stood in line. All those people standing in line, laughing, joking with each other, jostling for position. They took the window out of the western wall of the finance office, if you can believe it. They took out the whole window, frame and all, so people could stand outside, so people could line up outside in the sun and the wind and not stack up inside, coiled like a snake turning on itself. And I had stood in line, oblivious, excited. I was thrilled in that little kid way to feel that excitement to stand there with all those people, many of whom knew me, who said hi to Khan and said things to me too. Hello, my relative, they would say, or, okay, Niskani, did you know we are related? Or, hello, little man, I'm your cousin, did you know that? The money had been an idea for so long that when it came time for me, when I turned 18, near the end of our senior year, that I was surprised I had to do anything at all. At that time, talk of claim check money was as common as sunlight, as water and air. People joked about being claim check rich and then laughed about being claim check broke. People bought claim check cars, got claim check drunk. A few even got claim check married. Some part of me had thought when my 18th birthday came around that the money would suddenly appear in my hands, ready to spend. Instead, Big Man took me to the bank in Blood Creek, because for those of us born in time to receive a claim check but not old enough to receive the money ourselves, that money was given to our parents or grandparents or whoever it was that was raising us, and they could do whatever they wanted with it. 
And in many cases, they did. They spent it right there, maybe all of it that very day, the day of everyone lining up. And then others, like Big Man, like June's parents, put that money in an account and let it sit, let it gather interest, let it become an idea that would be part of our imaginations as we grew up. Just wait till I get that claim check, someone might say. I'm going to be rich, then. I'm going to live like a white man, then. What I do remember is the bank. Walking into the bank, that brick building that has remained a bank all these years, though much of the town of Blood Creek has changed, is shabbier than it was when I was there, though now many of the people there are Blackfeet, and many of the white people who lived there and made it what it was, a pretty border town where people were not particularly fond of us, but were glad to take our money every two weeks on payday, have moved to other places. The calm and quiet of a bank is an amazing thing. You could never guess by looking around at those worn, industrial-rugged floors, the shiny leather chairs which seem to say, sit here, you belong here. Though when I think about them, they might be the only leather chairs I've sat in in my life. And the subdued tones of money-related words, you would not know the whole movement of our lives is there. Those quiet exchanges with women who smile and nod and take and give money and tell a whole country every day to have a good day. And it was not that long ago money was transported by whipped horses and trains with coal-filled bellies to vaults in outposts all over the West. Everything is so peaceful now. If you don't think about it, everything seems to be just fine. Me and Big Man went into the bank together. We talked to the banker, a white woman with very blue eyes and very blonde hair, who took me through the process of opening an account with the money that had been waiting for me. She looked at my grandpa's ID and said, How are you today, Mr. Falstar? And he said nothing. I cannot remember him saying anything more than, This guy here needs to open an account with that money. What money, she said. That money I put in here for him a ways back, he said. She took a while to figure out what he meant. I sat at a desk, answered some questions, signed a few papers, was handed a checkbook and a temporary ATM card. Have a good day, the teller said. Her voice was bright and cheery and high and crystal clear in a way I swear I have never heard an Indian talk. A few days later, we were at the dealership in Silver Falls. While me and June went to find my car, my grandpa stayed back and sat in the truck, smoking. He had rolled his window down a bit. He had parked so the wind hit the passenger side of the truck. Sitting there in his brush jacket, his king ropes hat, his dark glasses, a cigarette in his right hand, that plane's wind hitting the truck so hard you felt as if it hated you and wanted nothing but misery for you and your kin. Big Man was always waiting in the truck. Since I was a boy, he had been sending me into the grocery store or gas station to get something, 30-weight oil, a candy bar, cigarettes, which I was able to buy at Roddy's Corner Store, a block off the edge of the highway that ran through Lafleur. Roddy always let kids buy cigarettes for old people he knew, and that was most of them. You not want to come in, I said? You know what you want, he said, waving his hand. Ain't no point in me wasting time in there. I can't stand the sons of bitches that work at these places. The salesman walked me and June around the lot. It was true that I knew what I wanted, but it was also true I had never had any money and therefore had never been in a situation where someone wanted to remove that money from my possession. The salesman with his curly brown hair and mustache and round freckled face, he could not have been much older than me, but he seemed much more of a man, or at least talked that way. He spoke in a strong way, but I could tell he was not tough the way people at home were. 
He would not last 20 minutes talking like that where I was from. A man might try him out, see what his fists were worth, or a woman might strip him down in no more than a few words, leave him feeling naked and foolish. I had a feeling that, though I was not a fighter, I could still have taken him without much effort. At one point, I stopped to look at a new Mustang. What a car that was, candy apple red with a white drop top, sinuous and marauding. I would have totaled that car or been thrown in jail for reckless driving or both in less than 10 minutes. How about we take a look at these cars over here, the salesman said. Oh, I don't know, I said. I kind of like this one. I knew I could not afford it, but the way he was talking irritated me. Yes, that one is a beauty, he said, but I believe there are some models over here that are more within your price range. How do you know much money he has, June said. Maybe we're some of those rich Indians. Maybe he could buy two of these. The salesman did not say anything. Okay, I said. Why don't we look at those other models? I don't think I want one of these today. I nodded and smiled at him. There was a black Bronco I'd seen a few weeks earlier on a similar trip with June to Silver Falls, and she had set up her own account, withdrawn some of her own money, a day after her birthday. The two of us, we had been born only a few weeks apart. Just think, all those black feet during all those claim check years, all those presidents' faces, changing hands in towns like Silver Falls, June had, bought her, June had bought herself an orange Camaro with flames on the driver's side, fat rear tires. The blue-silver tint on the windows was peeling at the edges, and the black leather gear shift grip was worn smooth and gray and frayed at the edges. She hung an eagle feather from the mirror. No one did that in those days. People hung furry dice or air fresheners or crucifixes and rosary beads, but no one hung feathers from mirrors. It was a new and strange thing that should not have been strange at all. That large feather, its stock beaded in the floor colors, red and black, hung by a leather string. The feather's tip brushing the black vinyl dash when she turned corners, cruising around the floor. A feather given to her for graduation. Look, she had said, nodding at the feather, her hands gripping the wheel that looked too large in her hands. This car is sacred now. We sat in chairs before a broad desk, waiting. June had her long legs crossed. Her long black hair pushed back behind one ear, splashed over her shoulders, looking the way she always did, impatient, bored, selfish, indifferent, a younger, less beaten version of the bitch she would be in the coming years when her beauty fell away in pieces, man by man, backhand by backhand, to be replaced by a meanness commensurate with her once flawless face, her unchipped, unabsent, perfect white teeth that were exposed as often by a sneer as by a smile. It was so easy for me to look at her. Sometimes I had to remind myself to look away. She knew I liked her, but she was used to that. You could not not have a feeling about her. God damn, she said, do they not take Indian money here or what? She laughed. Her fingers were long and graceful, her nails purple, the paint chipped. She leaned forward, resting her elbows on her thighs. She was restless, panther-like. The salesman looked up from his paperwork. No, no, he said, smiling. That's the great thing about money. It's all the same. Doesn't matter who's spending. A dollar is a dollar is a dollar. We walked out of the dealership offices into the bright yellow afternoon sun. The wind had dropped off some. I knocked on Big Man's window. A blue-white feeling of excitement had been running through me since we had gotten to the lot. He rolled down his window and peered at me and nodded and said, Bet you feel like you could do anything right about now. Heck yeah, I said. 
I smiled a big smile without even meaning or wanting to. Don't come home too late, he said. There's still ice on the road in some spots. What I remember is the feeling of getting into that Bronco, closing the door, that hollow metallic thud. I adjusted the seat, which was mine. I tilted up the rear view, which was mine. I set my palms against the wheel, which was mine. How catty do you feel, June, who was not mine, said. God damn catty, I said. That's how I felt when I got that Camaro, she said, seeming almost thoughtful for once. I felt brand new. We pulled out of the parking lot on the 10th Avenue South, and though it was cold, I rolled the window down just to do it, just so I could hang an arm out there, just so I could feel like all those people I had seen driving with their windows down. June told me to roll it back up, but it did not. Fuck it, I thought. I leaned my head out the window and howled. You're such a weirdo, she said. No way, I said. I'm just pretty. We laughed. We stopped at an old-time drive through on the way out of town and got burgers and Cokes and fries. I had a triple cheese, and June had a double. She had always been able to eat whatever she wanted and remain thin and beautiful and fierce. There were a number of other cars parked there. I felt I was their equal for the first time. Those other drivers, I pointed at them and said, Those guys aren't even tough. I could take any one of them. Haw, oh, June said. Just a bunch of white women. Not too white to show the back of my hand, I said. I held my hand up and swiped it through the air. Fuck, she said, my niece could take you. That's true, I said, but that's because she's a honey. The best of the best, June said. We bucked wind the whole way home. The plane still dappled with patches of snow that had long ago gone gray. There were gusts that came up and hit the broad side of the Bronco so hard we almost swerved onto the shoulder. I kept us on the freeway instead of taking the 44 exit because I wanted to keep my speed up. It felt good to drive and not think about taking special care of that rig because it was big man's, but rather because it was mine. Every nickel of gas I put in there was my gas. That's how it was. We stopped in Lucero and went over to my cousin Leland's place and asked him to get us some beer. I had not seen him for a while. He came to the door looking like he always had, half slouched and easy in himself, shaggy hair over his ears, and seeming to be on the verge of saying something sly. Heck, you got ugly, he said, giving me one of those soft handshakes I was not accustomed to getting when I was not on a reservation. You don't know how hard I worked to get this way, I said. Hi, Sterling. Hey, man. Uh, thanks for, for being on Off the Page and for reading that story. Um, so this is the opening of a longer piece that I believe has been published in an anthology mm-hmm. called Off the Path, not, yeah. not Off the Page. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what inspired this piece or, or where it started? The uh, The inspiration is the claim check because these claim checks are things that certain tribes got for a, a limited period of time as court case settlements the, with the federal government that uh, stemmed from Indian Claims Court, which only existed for like three years, I think, in the late 50s and early 60s. And what they did is the the feds is what they did is they allowed tribes to take the U.S. government to court basically over various types of claims. And so in our case, it was either our second or third treaty with the U.S. government that um, was actually never ratified. 
I mean, you know, this is one of those things that like a lot of people in Indian country would know, but like most Americans, I don't think know because it's not, it's not taught in in most history courses. But the way that treaties work is that the treaties, you know, are, are agreed upon or signed between a, a a tribe and and the and the United States, and then those. Um, but treaty making powers belong to Congress, and uh, in the case of that particular treaty with us, uh, which was the largest land reduction that we that we had, that treaty was never ratified. And so the U.S. took the land and settled it, but we never got anything for it. That happened a lot. And so the claims court was a way of quote unquote dealing with that. And then they actually did away with claims court because there were so many claims that they were like, this is too much. We don't want to do this anymore. If you know the history of the relations between the U.S. and, and the tribes, like, you know, that's not unexpected, that sort of thing. So then, so then, so these claims were, were, were paid out as, as money and different tribes that settled these claims could decide to do different things with the money that the, the government, the U.S. paid them. What my tribe did is they, they, uh, some of that money was kept for the, uh, the Blackfeet tribal government. And then some of that was distributed to tribal members. I, I, I'm not remember the, remembering the exact years, but I think it was if anybody that was alive or born between 62 and 80. I mean, it's it's obviously documented legally, but like, you know, th- there's nothing like easily publicly available that talks about this. So I had to get on Facebook and ask people at home, like, you know, what was the cutoff date for the claim checks? And it was either 81 or 82. And so I was born just before that, but because I'm not, I'm not enrolled, which is a very long story, a different story. But so a lot of people around me when I was 18 were getting this this money. And I had grown up hearing about claim checks, you know. Uh, so, so it was just part of my life growing up. And, but, but I didn't learn until years and years later, like, where this money came from. And that essentially what was happening is that because the tribe agreed to settle this, to, to take this settlement, that we could never take the U.S. government to court again over any of that land that had been part of that unratified treaty. One of our two or three primary sacred sites is the Sweetgrass Hills, and they are they were part of that claim. And so when the tribal government agreed to that claim, they also agreed that we would never be able to legally lay claim to the Sweetgrass Hills again. And so they, they basically signed away one of our sacred sites for, uh, for money. And so what, what I realized and that what happens in this, you know, in this story as you read is that little man realizes that what he's been doing is he's spending his claim check monies. He's actually basically like... As, as the opening like line says, he's spending his piece of the Sweetgrass Hills, and it's basically on a car and, like, beer, which is how most people spent their claim money. It was just because they're 18, and all of a sudden you've got $1,000 in your pocket, and you've probably never had that kind of money in your life. And, all, and you know, so everybody was like, I'm going to go buy a car. they go buy a car, and then they'd, and they'd party. Well, and it does seem as if even if the characters are maybe not spending their money on, you know, the most mature things, it it does feel like for many of them it, it represents this um, visibility or legitimacy or, I don't know, crossing over into some other kind of world. I mean, having money in your pocket and having people wanting to take your money. And so it, even if it is just like beer and cars, it feels like those those purchases, those gestures have real emotional mm-hmm. significance for these characters. I mean, it, it, feel, it, it feels like the, the, these, these claims checks, even before the characters come into them, occupy like a, a real psychic space. 
I hadn't thought about it in the way that you just said it, but but that actually is what they were to me growing up. Is like they they occupied a psychic space, whether you got one or not. They were just part of your consciousness. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this too is because I realized at a certain point that people who were a lot younger than me had no idea what this was. They had never they like maybe they'd heard of claim checks, maybe they never had in their entire lives. And I was like. This is a major moment of our history, and and people who are like in their teens and early twenties, I'd be willing to bet most of them don't even don't know the first thing about it, and nobody really talks about you know why why we got the money. They just knew they got money, and so it's just it's very, it's a very interesting psychic space to use your use your term that they that these checks occupied, and, and I think what they did is for is for the people that got them is I think they they you know, like a sudden sense of power and freedom into your life that you didn't quite know what to do with. And so you just did what probably a lot of 18-year-olds would have done, you know. But the, the, other, the other side of that story, though, is that, is that, you know, especially at that time, poverty, like where I'm from, is relatively high. And, and it, was, it was poorer then than it is now. And so I think in that context that kind of money meant even more, you know, there was like, a, there was like a larger symbolic significance to suddenly having that money. It was more than just like, oh, I'm 18 and I've got, I've got some cash. It was that I've got money and I've never maybe seen this much money in my life. I also felt that in this excerpt, um, as much as there was this sense of power and excitement, uh, in the narration, there's this sense of uh, kind of foreboding in that there's a lot of attention paid to sort of June's future and mm. how it will not she will not have the same sort of power allure and, and confidence that she does in her youth. And I think you use the retrospective first person to create the sort of dark undertow to to the events you're portraying. And I think of that that sentence about when they're at the party and you you say that it felt like a train is bearing down on them. And mm. so on the one hand, they're turning 18, they're graduating from high school, they're coming into this money. But I, I also feel this this unease. And I don't know if that's something that you are thinking about with the piece or is that, if that's part of, of um, what you intend. Yeah. I'm just like what just listening to you talk about that makes is making me realize that I actually may have been a little more successful in getting that into the piece than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so we that, started so workshop already. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> the way that I relate to fiction, and I, I don't think there's anything particularly special about the way that I relate to it. It's just that I'll, this is just how it works for me. There's like an outermost layer of, of a narrative, which is sort of uh, which which is what I call. Like I usually think of it as like the organizing consciousness of, of the narrative. And in the case of a first person narrative, like that that organizing consciousness is the is the narrator, right? Is the first person narrator. And and my 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 first person narrators are always thinking about uh, time and death. And so I think there's two probably two layers of that uh, there's a for, there's the foreboding of looking back at a certain time in his life and seeing that and knowing how all of this turned out and knowing that that things were not just changing but that certain things were coming to an end and that you know and that the, and the, once those things come to an end they're they're irretrievable and and then there's also like the the a layer further back which is just in in the in the fact of reflecting on his own 
life the that necessarily like fuses that reflection with a sense of his own mortality so i think there's another i think that's another part of what you're what you're talking about i mean there is such a beautiful I want to say memoiristic sense, but there is a sense of the retrospective voice allows you to uh, think about time and to also just not pursue such a strict causal narrative. You know, there's all these Mm -hmm. beautiful, even in the excerpt you read, there are all these beautiful digressions. I love the part about just the quality of a bank, you know, and Mm. what what the, the feel of a bank. I mean, that's not something that that is like, there from a plot perspective, you right. know, and it feels like, and even within sentences, I mean, there's the few sentences in this, in this piece that, that within themselves kind of loop through time or take, or take digressions. And I think that, I don't know, that's just a beautiful facet of mm. the piece. And it seems tied really to that organizing consciousness that you talked about. So for a long time, I wrote almost, I wrote exclusively in first person. And as any fiction writer knows, one of the problems with a first-person narrator is like, how do I get, like, how do I get out of like the limitations of like that particular person's uh, point of view? And one of the things that I figured out was that uh, that retrospection is one way to do that. Is that is that by giving by giving that narrator you know a distance of of, of time between the time of the story and and the time of the telling. That allows the narrator to move through time in the ways in the in the ways that you're talking about, and like by being able to do that, allows the reader to give you permission to move as a writer in ways that I don't think you could, or they would be have, maybe have a harder time accepting um, if you were if you were just more down in the you know in the in the the the, the story per se. I read an interview with Leonard Michaels recently. And he was asked why he always writes or almost always writes in the first person. And he said something along the lines of, well, I'd rather write a poem or a song than tell a story in the conventional way. And for me, the lyric impulse always manifests in the first person. That's pretty interesting, man. I'd never thought of that before. Well, I mean, because actually a, a piece that we just critiqued in workshop the other day is probably the most lyrical thing that I've ever pulled off and like maybe made it work. And it's also in first person. That's good. That's pretty interesting. Actually, that'll have me, I'll be thinking about that for a while because the same thing happens to me. There's something about writing in first person that I feel like there's room to, for that, for, for some kind of lyricism to come into the into the sentences that doesn't come in as easily if I'm writing in third. Although I will say that, at least for me, writing in third person allows me to write longer sentences. And I think it's because I don't feel like I'm using a particular person's voice. And I think that's just me, you know, but but that, yeah, I've, I've never thought about this till you just made that comment. I would also, like, just frankly, like, I'd much rather be a musician than a writer, but I have no <laughs> musical talent. So like, you know, this is like as close as I can get. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sterling, thank you so much for uh, sharing your work with us and appearing on Off the Page. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, 
Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Osei Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.